Welcome to Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Dorinda Sharp. And I'm Colin Hesse. On this episode, Dorinda talks with Regina Hopper, an alumna of the Department of Political Science and the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, as well as the School of Law. She's also Senior Vice President for Global Public Policy at GridSmart Technologies. They discussed her very career and her U of A memories. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to the U of A. Oh, I just love it. I love being here so much. It's so much fun to be on campus. Thanks. Great. And thank you for taking time out to, to speak with us and our audience today. I want to start with your the kind of law you practice is so cutting edge and so interesting and so unusual. <laughs> yeah, some people would call it like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> would you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. To get a feel for exactly what you do. Yeah, I really take um, the legal education that I had and the legal practice that I've had and overlay that thinking onto public policy. So my role is really to identify um, issues for the advancement of public policy, but then also the legal issues surrounding that public policy. So right before we started this podcast today, we were talking about some of the issues I've been working on, um, which are in what we call intelligent or next generation transportation. So that is broadly the utilization of data to help make transportation safer and more efficient and more productive and more equitable. So what does that mean? So for example, connected cars, cars that talk to one another. Well, the legal issues that come out of connected cars, I mean, like we said, we were just sitting in your office and we wanted (laughs) to have a 15 minute conversation about you know, what about the insurance issues and what about the legal liability issues and the coverage issues and who's at fault if, if one of these cars, you know, messes up. Yeah. So, um, so that's really what I do. And um, you don't see me in court every day. As a matter of fact, you probably don't ever see me in court unless there's an issue that I'm just monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see me talking to legal counsels, general counsels, product manufacturing counsels, Um, public policy councils to determine um, it's almost a more forward-facing type of of work. I'm guessing that you try to anticipate the potential problems Mm -hmm. so you can work those out in what's bound to be legislation about this before you have to come back and do it on the, the back end. That's right. So it's both legislative either initiation of legislation to deal with new issues that are arising, or it is a regulatory perspective. And in with the way in which our politics works today, and I won't make a political statement, but the way in which the legislative process, some people say, really doesn't work today, um, a lot of focus now goes into the regulatory schematic around these types of issues. So. While Congress can be appropriators and legislators, it's really the regulatory agencies who set the boundaries upon which these new and innovative products will work. So here's an example. Right now there is a a dual conversation taking place in Washington about intelligent transportation because of the data acquisition. So if cars talk to one another, they're constantly um, creating and, and they're, they're creating data. Um, your cell phone, as we all know, we opt into some sort of cell phone data 
plans, right? Yes. Where we say, oh, well, for the convenience of knowing the fastest way of getting somewhere, for example, if you like use Waze, right. then you are giving up some freedom in your data mm -hmm. um, creation. So with the new connectivity in cars, with the autonomy of vehicles, not just cars, but also other vehicles, there, there's a lot of questions now about who owns that data? Mm -hmm. um, how can that data be used? Mm -hmm. Who should house that data? This has been a really interesting topic because if, if, a dat if data is getting thrown off of a car mm -hmm. or thrown off of your phone, to then be used to create a safer environment for all of the cars and vehicles around you. And not just cars, by the way, the infrastructure, like the lights and the pedestrians and the bicycles and everything moving around. Mm -hmm. Then where should that data go? It should be anonymous, right? So they shouldn't be able to say, well, Regina's car just went blasting through four stop signs. Right. Or should it? Yeah. These are the issues that are being debated right now, and that's one of those that has both a legislative component and a regulatory component. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's really fascinating. I mean, one of the professors here and I just had a conversation about, so if you are in an autonomous vehicle, meaning a self-driving vehicle, and there are several levels of that, because some of the new cars have levels of autonomy anyway. Okay. Um, but if you are in a fully autonomous vehicle, meaning that the human being is not touching the wheel or the pedals. I can be reading a book. You could be reading a book, watching a movie, doing a conference call, having a meeting. Okay. There are a lot of people who believe that, you know, there will now be conference meetings in cars, you know, as wow. if something happens in that car, let's say there's an accident, who's actually at fault? If, if the driver isn't driving, a human isn't driving, is it the software company, is it the manufacturer? Is it the individual or company that owns that particular vehicle? And then with more autonomy comes potentially less vehicle ownership. Right. So that would mean that, hmm, do cities now lose some of their parking revenue because you don't drive to work, park your car, right. um, drive to school or church or convenient shopping and park the car and pay for parking. So it's truly a cultural shift in the way that that you think about movement and transportation, and um, there are a lot of issues, but that's that's what I do every day. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that with the privacy thing too. When you said, you know, do we want people to know that Regina's car just blew through four stop lights? Right. But what if Regina isn't in Regina's car? Right. If it's not Regina's car. Right. Right. Well, but, I don't own it. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't own it. You're not controlling it. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and where's the privacy there? Obviously, you'd have to call for the car. So do they know who's in the car in the time that it's in the car? Is that part of the data that's getting mm -hmm. swapped? It, well, I'm sure it will be. But how anonymous is that? Like, did I pick up, you know, female passenger A on the corner of 14th and G Street in downtown Washington, D.C., and take female passenger A six blocks? Yeah. Well, we already know that other than the female part, that that data is already collected in cabs, in Ubers and Lyfts and right. other shared vehicles, right? So that kind of data already exists. They use that data to help them staff, you know, get cars in the right place. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you go out to National Airport in D.C. and you know that the peak of the day is 5 p.m., well, they know that, not only because the planes are coming in, but because they've picked up so many passengers over the course of X number of days. 
But if you don't own a car um, anymore and you're just relying on mobility, you probably arguably become more anonymous, mm -hmm. right? Unless they say, Regina Hopper just got in the car at 14th and G Street and right. went six blocks. Which is possible because everyone will have to have some sort of identifier mm -hmm. to call, right. I mean, just like when you call Uber or Lyft mm -hmm. or whatever, you've got an account. An account and it tells you, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are already laws in place to say, well, who, who gets to keep that data and is that their data and your data? Mm -hmm. Well, right now it is their data mm -hmm. and your data. Because if, if I'm doing my expenses, for example, and I miss that one, I can call Uber and go, I have here on my credit card that on January 15th, I was in San Francisco. Can you tell me if that's right and where did I go? Because I don't remember that trip. They can tell you. Wow. They can tell you exactly. Wow. And they can tell you who the driver is when you got in the car, when you got out of the car, did you tip the driver? Did you give the driver a five star or a two star? Did the driver give you a three star or a five star? My goodness. All of that data is already there. The issue is though, that what's so fascinating about it is that for the most part, there's so much data yeah. that just by virtue of the volume, it becomes anonymous. Right. So I had, and I'm not, I'm not a real expert in this from the data <laughs> perspective, but from a policy perspective, I try to be. But, um, but I had a, a, a woman who works at the um, in one of the Minnesota um, pilot projects that's in place. And I'm, I'm sorry, not Minnesota, Michigan. Um, and she is, she, this is what she does all day. And she said, there's so much data right now just in tests. Think of it as a bathtub or a series of bathtubs that mm -hmm. don't have the stopper in it. Oh. In other words, data is, data is being fed into these bathtubs constantly, but it's just going out the bottom of it all the time. Wow. And there's no, people haven't figured out really the best way in which to do analytics around that data, mm -hmm. the storage. If you think about how much data there is, if you tried to store all of it, how would you even store yeah. all of that? So, and how would you search it? And search it and, you know, analyze it in the right way mm -hmm. and yeah so you know yeah. those who use it like the amazons of the world and the ubers of the world and others our military complexes mm -hmm. you know things like that they've figured out how to identify the data that makes the most sense to them but that still doesn't mean that there isn't i'm just going to use a really technical term <laughs> tons and tons of data <laughs> <laughs> right that's just you know going going away well it goes back to the whole um back to the military side of things intelligence is only intelligence if you can find what you're looking for right the mm -hmm. rest of it's just noise that's right that is that is correct and so um one of the things that that i've found interesting is how quickly these areas have developed um for those of your listeners that go to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, the biggest show in the United States mm -hmm. every year about what's new in consumer electronics. And when it first started, it was about, you know, the new toys or the new robots or the new oven or your new, you know. And then cars started being a part of it. But it's really been over the last 24 months that the transportation elements around the consumer and technology, where the consumer and technology come together to advance transportation initiatives. And I, I was stunned the first year that, that I went out on behalf of communications, because I'd been there prior for other 
issues like mm -hmm. broadband deployment and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I did maybe one or two panels at CES. In the last two years, it's like you could be on every single panel wow. talking about it. Because, let me just give you an example. So the, the individual who's the head of research and development for General Motors, brilliant guy, Scottish guy, has worked all over the world. And I ran into him in one of the rooms, um, like speaker ready rooms. He's like, hey, Regina. And I said, oh my gosh, I just did this panel on you know X, Y, and Z. And there were so many questions that I couldn't answer. There were so many questions being presented that it was almost like a focus group, like just keep asking questions, I'm gonna write them down. Yeah. He goes, okay, let me ask you a question and he, see if you know. And I said, what? And he goes, so, I do research and development for General Motors. I said, right. He said, so who do you think has been trying to get a meeting with me here at CES who has just been rabid about wanting to meet with me? And I said, God, I could think of a million different people who want. He goes, Kellogg's. Kellogg's. Really? Right. So that was me. I'm like, Kellogg's? You mean like the cereal? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, think about it. Autonomy equals more time for you in the car. So why not have breakfast in the car? Huh. Why not have other meals in the car? How do we monetize the time right. that is in the car? So they wanted to understand what true autonomy would really mean. Wow. So yeah, so it's like every facet of your life. Entertainment, entertainment now mm -hmm. is all about, well, wait a minute, I can get more eyeballs for Netflix or Hulu or whatever your choice is, right? Mm -hmm because you don't have to pay attention where you're going now right. in the car. And then business is saying, oh, well, wait a minute, let's see, if I provide the autonomous vehicle for my employees at certain levels, could I then require that to be part of their work, which means that they will be productive on their way to work and home from work? And does that change when you're required to be in the office? Does could. that add an hour to your day either way, or does that make just make your commute part of, of your work day. Of the work day. So you get in the car at 8 rather than arrive at the office at 8. Right. Exactly. Or maybe you get in the car at 7. Right. But now all of a sudden instead of working 8 to 5 or 9 to 6 or whatever, mm -hmm. you're working the two hours on the, the right. front of the back end of that. You're working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which all of us do. Right. 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 I mean, you know, when if, I mean, part of that is, is in culture, you know, we often tend to want to talk on the phone in the car. And we all, we, we know that studies show that that. Um, isn't good for any of us, that right. that distracts us. It, it really, truly is distracted driving. So that's when I started, when we started this discussion, I talked about one of the driving forces behind an intelligent transportation model is to make the roads safer mm -hmm. for all of us who are on them. You know, it's, it's fascinating because over 30,000 people, I think the number was around 35,000 people lost their lives in accidents in automobiles last year. Wow. 35,000 people. So if you take that figure and you go, what if 35,000 people died in airline accidents? Yeah. Well, there would be a hue and a cry, right? I mean, yeah. it would be like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. If 35,000 infants lost their lives due to a defective crib, mm -hmm. if 35,000 people, I mean, you pick it, right? right? But for some reason, this society has decided that that's not acceptable, but yet 
we just live with it. Right. So part of those like me who work in the intelligent transportation space, we like to believe, because we do believe, that the work that's being done in this area will reduce those. Will we ever get rid of any, of all deaths due to movement? Probably not. But there are many um, programs like Vision Zero that's been adopted by many people, many cities, many localities, many communities saying, you know, we would really love to have zero fatalities. Mm -hmm. So we're working toward that. But that's really the underlying reason behind intelligent transportation. All of these other issues that come from it become ancillary yet important. Well, so I'm guessing, since this wasn't an issue when you were in law school. <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about this. This is not what you intended to no. do. How did you get, how, what in your life led you to this particular subject matter? The circuitous route, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, people often ask me the question, do you think a law school education is worth it? Mm -hmm. Because you're not practicing law in the traditional sense. Right. So could you just have gotten where you were without having done that? I mean, I guess you could always say, well, maybe. But I, I, love, to, I love to say two things. I'm like, if I were elected, ever elected president, which I don't want to be. <laughs> you're not running. You're I am not, not running. Today that you're <laughs> no. I'm just trying to make, use an analogy. If I had the authority to kind of say, oh, here's two things I think are really important. I would say don't get married until you're at least 30. <laughs> but secondarily, seriously, the legal education should be available for so many more. Because what a legal education does for you is it teaches you to reason and to accept the fact that you don't always know the answer. Mm -hmm. That you can listen to varying points of view that you can take a written word and go back and look at the history of how those words ended up on the paper mm -hmm. and apply the history to those words, yet then try to debate and discuss how the culture that you are now in either keeps the original intent of those words or was meant to just drive a discussion. I mean, that's constitutional law at its basis. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. That's constitutional law. Um, so the thing, other than, you know, so many professors thinking, you know, that I was scared of when I was here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I still, like, remember walking in going, I'm not going to make it through this. <laughs> but, um, you know, it teaches you how to think. And so... I like to think that, you know, the first job that I had out of law school was a traditional legal associate mm -hmm. job, right? I mean, I was a young associate doing work that young associates do. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of the work, the exposure, and the connections that I made, I was able to then move to the next thing and the next thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been interesting in my world at least in my career development, was that everything was, my next step was always somehow associated with that first step, even though mm. it didn't stay in necessarily the same genre or right. field. So, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have been a part of the Miss America organization, which gave me a lot of 
that gave me scholarship and, <laughs> and a lot of connections. But my first school, or my first job out of law school, then led to being introduced to the media. Mm -hmm. The media then gave me political. Political then gave me um, public policy. Public policy then gave me another look at the law. Another look at the law then gave me additional public policy. Right. So everything was building up mm -hmm. based upon that initial legal and political education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I know the law school, our law school or any law school, can't educate everyone. And not everyone wants to learn in that fashion. Right. But the, the way in which you are taught in law school, I can remember one of my professors who, who I had my second year here, kept saying, it's less important that you know the law the law will change. Mm -hmm. It is more important that you understand the thinking process on how to develop the law and interpret mm -hmm. the law. And um, that sounds very judicial in its sort of premise, but in the end, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So that, that's what I've been so fortunate, um, I think so fortunate to have had. Well, since you are one of our alumna. Yes. Who are some of your Favorite professors. professors. <laughs> so, okay. Well, favorite. I really never had a professor that I didn't like ever. Um, there were some that scared me more than others. Right. But, um, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I had Robert Leffler. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how fortunate. And did I even, even begin to understand who he was at that point in my life? No. I mean, right. you know, you read the backgrounds, you know, but I mean, it was just unbelievable mm -hmm. that I had the opportunity to sit and <laughs> listen to him teach and, you know, like constantly question, even if you thought you had the right answer. Right. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Or can <laughs> you ever really be sure? You know, um, Professor Guzman was my criminal law teacher. He seriously scared me silly. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, he's scary. See, he really did. Um, so Al Witte, who was contracts um, here, um, those are the three that, that come to mind. But of course, I had, had many teachers here who, um, most of which I don't think were here. And you know, it's interesting, we were talking about Professor Brill the other day mm -hmm. in, a, in another meeting that I was in. I don't remember ever having him. I may have had, he, he may have you know, been one of the, the instructors, but I just remember him being so amazing yeah. and I felt like I learned from him but I can't point to which class you know I had with him but um, yeah it's just so many so many professors and the thing that I remember most oddly enough about law school wasn't the individual classes but more the receptivity to me on what I considered to be their off time mm. You know, yeah. every, I don't ever remember a professor saying, ask me that in class. Right. Or, you know, we didn't have a lot of clinics and things like that that, that, that you do now. But um, their doors were always, always open. Yeah. Always open. It wasn't a comeback during office hours. No. <laughs> not that I can ever remember. Yeah. You know? It, it was the same way in undergrad, too. I mean, you know, right. I graduated with a you know, Bachelor of Arts degree in political science here and 
Diane Blair, who mm -hmm. um, was my advisor, and other than the fact that she would push me yeah. hard, yes. push me very <laughs> hard, right? And sometimes be frustrated with me if she thought that I was being intellectually lazy. Right. Um, but that's what I remember most. I loved, I loved every second of law school. I wasn't necessarily always very confident mm -hmm. in being here. I was always afraid of failure. So I probably didn't prioritize my time as well as I could have or take advantage of as many things that I could have. But I loved every second that I was here. I did, I loved it. What, what advice would you give to current students? Oh, just like soak it all in. You know, when you're when you're in law school, you know, you're still at the age to where it's sort of like, oh, it's, you know, fun on the weekends and got to go out. And, and you should, right? I mean, this is part of soaking it all in. The people that you go to law school with are people that you hope will be close to you. I mean, you're not going to be close to everybody you go to law school with, but you're going to make some good friendships that and, and mentorships that will stay with you the rest of your life. I mean, I, was, I wasn't the top law student. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the bottom law student. I was an average law student. I was right in the middle. But I had friends at every single level. Mm -hmm. And all of those people have gone on to be extraordinarily successful in their own ways. And I call on so many of those people still today. I, you know, I won't, I won't use her name now, but you know, <laughs> she has, uh, there, there was one, one woman that I went to law school with who we are very close and still maintain both a professional and personal friendship. And That's we often, nice. you know, go back and think, remember studying the law librarian? <laughs> you know, she was just so intense and very, you know, and I was sort of more, I don't know, lackadaisical if that's a word, you know, I'd kind of, okay, I'm going to go to the library and then, well, I'm going to go get some, you know, coffee and then I think I'm going to go get something to eat. And she's like, how long are you actually in the library? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the advice would be, you know, soak it all in, do both the professional and the personal, you know, learn, but also network because that's learning too. Mm -hmm. um, take advantage of as many of these things that are presented now that we didn't have, you know, the clinics and the lectures and the visiting professors and all of these things were, I just, I look at the, the newsletters that are sent out and I'm like, gosh, if I lived in Fayetteville, I would be asking every day, can I go to this? Can I go to that? <laughs> and I guess maybe alums can, I, I don't know. Absolutely. Um, but there are very few things that are closed. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. So, um, so Secretary Slater, for example, is, is here today, I know we try to keep mm -hmm. this evergreen, but the day that I'm visiting here. Right. And I've been so fortunate that he has been a friend of, of my family's. My father and he served on the Highway Commission together. And then when I started covering the White House in Washington for CBS, you know, he was Secretary of Transportation at that right. time. So, um, so, you know, all of those things that you get here mm -hmm. that just stay with you the rest of your life, um, yeah. even if you go away from them for a while, yeah. You always get to come back. I really wish we had time to talk so much more, not about just what you do now, but you've, you've had such an interesting career from the Miss Arkansas stuff to the USO tour that mm -hmm. you helped organize for the Miss, for Miss Arkansas, I mean mm -hmm. Miss America that year, mm -hmm. um, to sitting on the Miss America board, to being an Emmy award winning journalist. Yeah. I mean, 
I wish we could talk for hours, and I hate that we can't, but oh, thank you thank so you. much for being here today. Well, thank you for asking me. It means the world to me, and there are so many people who have done so many things, and for this award in particular, I hope people will go back and take, the look at the, uh, take a look at the background because the purpose of this is to look at women who have made a difference um, in different ways, and if you look at the list of people who have been awarded this. I, I feel so inconsequential, but <laughs> at the same time, you can learn so much from those. So I hope people will take a take a chance and you know look back and thank you so much for having me. It's of just course. great. Thank you. You bet. For more information on conversations with the Legal Academy, show notes, and additional episodes, go to law.uark.edu/podcast, or you can find us at kuaf.com under the local and podcast menu. You can also listen to episodes or subscribe through iTunes or with your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others find us. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.